All right, good morning. How is everyone? Good? Awesome. Okay, so I failed to mention, uh, and I'm kicking myself, I failed to mention uh, last service that uh, we've had some printer problems um, this past week. So um, uh, that's why you don't have message notes this morning. So if you're wondering, where's the message notes? Well, we had printer problems. So there it is. So no message notes. I want to encourage you to um, maybe write in your Bible or pull out a piece of paper and uh, scribble some notes. We, we always want to encourage people to bring notes to community group. And so it feels very weird not to say pull out your message notes, but it's all good. Okay, so um, mic is on. Perfect. Okay, so um, today we're going to be in the book of Revelation. Next Sunday, we are officially launching a new series in the Gospel of John. Super excited about it. Uh, just have needed a little bit more time to kind of get that started because I, I, I'm going to do like a big sweeping overview of, of the book. So, um, so we're going to be tackling that next Sunday. Be here. Bring someone. I'm really excited about it. We'll be in John for like two years. And uh, like we were... In, I know some of you think I'm joking, but like with Luke, we were, Luke was like 100 messages. So um, I don't know, I might do 101 messages in John just to say John beat Luke. All right, I don't know. Anyways, um, hey, Revelation chapter 3, um, we're going to look at verses 14 to 22. The last song that we just sang actually ties in perfectly with... Um, really the theme of my message about if we're going to live, we're living for Christ. If we're going to die, we're going to die for Christ. And at the end of the day, it's all about following Jesus. Um, So let's look at the passage together. It says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, And neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Uh, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, we're going to dig in. There's a lot of material to cover So um, here we go. The Apostle John uh, penned these ancient words in the book of Revelation. We know that John was one of the original disciples. He was an eyewitness to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He was a leader of the early church. He was actually one of the the pillars, the spiritual uh, foundational pillars of the church in Jerusalem. He pastored the church at Ephesus. He wrote five books of the Bible. History tells us that they tried to boil him alive. I mean, that's what you call, that's what persecution is. You try to boil someone alive, but he wouldn't die. And so they exiled him to a small island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
Laodicea is actually one of the seven ancient churches mentioned in the book of Revelation. And when you look at the seven churches, these are real historical ancient churches in Asia Minor uh, during the first century. But each ancient church back then represents churches now. So when you look at the seven churches, two of the seven churches get commendations from Jesus, all commendations, no criticisms. So these are like healthy, Christ-exalting, Christ-loving, Bible-believing churches, Smyrna and and Philadelphia, where we get the word brotherly love. Uh, One church gets only criticisms and no commendations. Four churches out of the seven get, get mixed reviews. So some things Jesus highlights that he approves of, some things he disapproves of. Um, Jesus' indictment to Laodicea was, was pretty clear. He said, you are neither hot nor cold. And would, would that I spew you out of my mouth. So before we tackle the passage, let me give you a little bit of background on the city and the church of Laodicea. Laodicea is uh, nestled in the fertile Lycus Valley. Two other cities in close proximity, you have Colossae, which is on the southern end, and Heropolis. I believe Heropolis is on the the northern side. The city of Laodicea is on a high elevated plain overlooking the entire valley. It's built on a very important trade route, which made the city very affluent. Now, this is really important to remember. The, the, The city was marked by, you know, opulence, um, people who were very affluent, very wealthy. Um, Business was contracted there. Commerce was common. Rich people migrated there. They had two major theaters, which were like entertainment venues. Often in the first century, these theaters displayed the gods and the goddesses on stage. And it was basically their way of saying, their way of making a statement, this is who we are. This is what we believe. This is our worldview. The theaters, um, historians have told us that they can see anywhere from 8 to 12,000 people overlooking the majestic valley. They've excavated homes in Laodicea. The average homes were a few thousand square feet. I mean, that's that's like, those are very, very large homes uh, for um, this city 2,000 years ago. It was a city of opulence, great wealth. The people were highly educated. They had a famous medical school. In the eyes of the world, Laodicea, they were seen as important. They were seen as significant. Like they had status. They had it all. I mean, bottom line, they had the best of everything. They had the best food. They had the best things to drink. They had the best entertainment, best jobs. Uh, best status in the region. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He, he said, we can have chronological snobbery. And he said, we think in the, quote, olden days, people weren't as smart as we are. You know, we're advanced and developed. And he's right. We, we do have chronological snobbery. We, we think that, you know, all those people that lived back then, you know, podunk towns, you know, they didn't have anything. No, they, they had these massive theaters, these massive homes. They were very wealthy. It was a, a very polytheistic culture. They worshiped a plethora of gods and goddesses. Zeus was the primary patron deity of the city. They were known for their emperor worship to Domitian. There was a large number of Jews that lived in Laodicea. 
And because of business, there were travelers and pilgrims that were coming and going. There was a diverse uh, people groups, uh, very diverse people groups living in the city. And it was a very strategic place to plant a church. And here's what they did. The early church, the, the leaders of the church, they would go to areas where the gospel was not preached and they would, they would plant a church with a few new believers. And then the gospel, by, by prayer and the work of the Holy Spirit, the gospel would take root. People's lives would be changed. The gospel would spread. And so they took the gospel to urban areas. They took the gospel to cities. And then through the cities, it would reach the rural areas. The church of Laodicea most likely was founded on Paul's third missionary journey. Epaphras, we know that Epaphras, a fellow worker of Paul, servant of the Lord, a missionary, he took the gospel to the city of Colossae, which was 10 miles south of Laodicea. Most likely, Epaphras or someone else, a new convert in, in Colossae, took the gospel to Laodicea. Look, notice in Colossians chapter 4, 12 to 13, it says, Epaphras who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. You know, Epaphras, he lived a life that, that was well-lived. His life was marked by serving Christ and reaching out to lost people. He played a vital role, not only at the church in Colossae, and Heropolis, but obviously he impacted people's lives in Laodicea. That's the church, the city of Laodicea. Let's shift gears and talk about the picture of Jesus. In verse 14 of the passage that we, we just read, it gives us a statement about Christ. It says, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The words of the amen. Now we know the, the word amen, when, when someone says amen, what are they saying? I agree, right? So when I say Jesus is the only way to heaven, what, what should you say? Amen. Amen. The word of God is, is God's word written by the Holy Spirit given to us. Amen. When you say amen, I agree, right? I agree. But this title applied to Jesus means that Jesus is reliable. He's the God of truth. Jesus is God's ultimate confirmation. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. And then it says, the beginning of God's creation. The beginning of God's creation. Does that mean that Jesus is a created being? The Arians in the, first, in the fourth century, uh, they were a, a heretical group. They believed that Jesus was not eternal with the Father. That Jesus was created. He was a created being. He, he was not uh, a part of the triune Godhead. He is, he, he, he was, he's not eternal with the Father. And just like Solomon says, nothing is new under the sun. Even when it comes to heresies and false doctrine, um, things of the past kind of surface into the present. Uh, the Jehovah Witnesses, they've adopted this view. So Jehovah Witnesses are not Christians. If you, think, if you think they are, you're dead wrong. They're not Christ followers. They say they follow Christ. They follow, as Paul says to the Corinthians, they follow a different Jesus, a different God, a different gospel. So there's one God, there's one gospel, there's one Jesus revealed to us in the pages of the Bible. So this phrase, um, that which 
um, this phrase, uh, hold on, hold on, the beginning of God's creation actually means that from which creation begins. The emphasis is not on the beginning of Jesus Christ, but on the beginning of everything else. Jesus is not a created being. He's the eternal one. He is the source and the origin of all creation. He has supreme authority over all creation. Colossians 1 verse 16 says, For by him, so by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the agent of creation. Everything came into being by him, through him, and then notice this, for him. You were created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. You were not created. Let, let me back up. You're not an accident. You're made in the image of God, which means you are worthy, you are loved, you are known by this God. You were made by Him. He formed you in the womb of your mother. This is this, this God knows you intimately because He created you. Now, this gives us a picture of who Jesus is. He, um, um, he reveals some things about him. Now, let's look at verses 15 and 16. It says, this is the message, right? This is what he's saying to the church of Laodicea, right? I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. All right, here's point number one. Write it down. Symptom. Let's talk about this symptom. You know, Jesus is brutally honest, and he's just downright blunt. He says, you are neither cold nor hot. He says, you are lukewarm. Now, when it comes to something that is lukewarm, I don't know about you, but th this is how I ride. This is who I am. Like, um, I like things either hot or cold. I don't like lukewarm. I don't like lukewarm sodas. I don't like lukewarm leftovers. Give me a leftover. I mean, heat that thing up. Come on, man. I mean, my wife knows. Get that thing piping hot. I like things piping hot, you know. Give me some nasty, gross, lukewarm meal or like a lukewarm soda. You ever been in the car and you're driving somewhere and, and you're just thirsty and you start looking around maybe for a water bottle and you, and you see a water bottle and you, and you grab it. You ever done this and you grab it? and you instantly feel the warmth of the water bottle. And if you've been like me, where you're so thirsty, you're like, I I'm gonna try it. I I'm so thirsty. I'm just and then you start drinking this hot water in the car, and you're, you know, you're like, I just gotta get to a 7-Eleven. You know, I just need, I need a big gulp or something, right? No one likes drinking things lukewarm. Unless you're in, you know, Europe, right? They don't put ice in their sodas, whatever. I, I don't understand it, but anyways. Lukewarmness, Jesus is saying when something, some, your, 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 your lukewarmness, your spiritual condition makes me gag. He's saying the lack of passion and enthusiasm makes me gag, makes me vomit, makes my stomach churn. To understand the meaning of lukewarm, I think we need to see the contrast in verse 19. Notice what he says in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. 
So the remedy for lukewarmness is what? To be zealous. To be zealous. Zeal is the opposite of being lukewarm. Now, the Greek word translated zealous, it's actually in the positive. Most of the time, the word zealous is in the, the negative, which is the word jealous. So zealous and jealous, based on context, is, is how it's translated. Zealous means to have a zeal for God, to be jealous for God, to be like radically pursuing, passionately pursuing Christ in your life. Jealousy is when you set your love intensely on someone. I think there's different ways of looking at jealousy. You can be jealous and love your own ego. When you're jealous and you love your own ego, you're jealous of people. Here we go. You guys ready? We've all been there. We're going to struggle with this till the day we die. When you're jealous of people, you're threatened by them. You're threatened by their gifts, their personality, their abilities, their looks. You're threatened about something that they have that you don't have. Because you're, you place a lot of emphasis on, on you and your ego, right? When you're jealous and you love someone, then you're jealous for them. You're not jealous of them. You're jealous for them. You have a desire for their growth and their happiness and their joy in God. Did you know that God is a jealous God? Now, not in the same way we, we think of jealousy, like this human jealousy. He has a divine jealousy. Human jealousy is like low self-esteem, uh, insecure. God is, has this divine jealousy for you. He has a, a, a divine jealousy for you. The Bible says that you have been redeemed, and you and I, we are... Uh, people for his own possession like we are his people we are his children we are his sheep we're we're part of his body we're part of his family he is jealous over you he's jealous for you you know someone who is lukewarm might be a believer and I think the key word is might might be a believer but the supreme passion of their life and highest love of their heart might be set on something other than Jesus Christ Someone who's lukewarm, like they, they may know Christ, they may know and believe, but the gospel is not the controlling principle of their lives. So if it's not, if Jesus doesn't have first place, the result is there's going to be a lack of zeal, a lack of jealousy for God, a lack of intimacy and passion and joy and wonder in walking with God. You know, Jesus had something to say to a different church. The church at Ephesus, they were theologically sound. I mean, doctrinally, they knew what they believed. They held firm to, to the word of God. But they were extremely zealous for God. But one problem that they had, they abandoned God. They, they drifted. They, they, they fell out of love with God. They abandoned their first love and love for people. And Jesus said, remember from where you have fallen and repent. If you do not repent, Jesus said, I will remove your lampstand from its place. What he's saying is, if you don't repent and get right, I'm going to remove your light. I'm going to remove your influence and your presence and your witness and my blessings upon your church. Ephesus had too much zeal. They were out of balance. Um, Ephesus, these people, they were legalists. They were, they were really hard. I think they didn't show a lot of grace to people. 
But Laodicea was the exact opposite. They didn't have enough zeal and enough passion and enthusiasm for Christ. And so this is why they get this scathing rebuke, right? They're labeled as the worst church. And there's, there's no mention of removing the lampstand. Now, obviously, the lampstand is still burning, but, and there's believers in the church. So that's one way of looking at lukewarmness. Here's another way, and this is, this is kind of where I lean. This is my leaning on the church, which they're, the seven churches of Asia Minor represent churches today. So I think the predominant problem in Laodicea is people professing Christ, but most likely not being believers. There's profession, but there's not practice. There's walking an aisle. There's praying a prayer, but there's no life transformation. There's words, but not works. And we know that the works, the works don't save us, right? We know it's, it's the, the root of salvation is faith in Christ. That's the root. That's the foundation, but we know that if you're genuinely a, a believer, that that faith is going to produce works. The outflow of our faith is works, you know, good deeds. It's evidence of genuine saving faith that you really are a believer. I think Jesus is functioning missiologically here. I think he's looking at the context of culture, and I think Jesus is trying to uh, communicate a truth to the people that they'll understand. So the idea of hot, cold, lukewarm, it wasn't foreign to the first century audience. And 2,000 years later, because the Bible is relevant and timeless and it's God's truth and it's eternal, um, then it's relevant for us today. And so Laodicea, now here's what's interesting. Laodicea had one major problem. They had no fresh water supply. So they had a centralized water system. They had an aqueduct six, six miles long, and they piped water in. Now, from the north, from the northern region, um, Laodicea uh, across the Lycris River was Heropolis. And the thing that was impressive about this city was they had these beautiful white cliffs, and they were known for, like, their hot springs. You would go there for private and public baths containing minerals. Like, people would go there seeking medical help. And then south of Laodicea, you had Colossae. And Colossae was known for their cold streams, streams of fresh, clear, cold water that, that ran into the valley. So you had hot springs in the north, cold springs in the south. But when they reached Laodicea, the water was lukewarm. People in Laodicea couldn't drink the water. So I think here's the point that Jesus is making. He's tapping into their culture and, and imagery and metaphors, and he's, he's, he's conveying a spiritual point using physical realities around them. Jesus is saying, you are apathetic. He's saying, you're indifferent. You're half-hearted towards me. You're neither hot. So like, there's... You don't bring healing or restoration or hope or comfort to those around you. You're neither cold, so you're not refreshing. You're not uplifting. You're, there, there's no burst of energy, enthusiasm, and life uh, because, because of the gospel in your life. Why did Jesus say, would that you were either cold or hot? I think the application is, a, an application for us is God is calling the church to take the gospel to a hurting world. You know, the people around you, your oikos, your family, your neighbors, your friends, they may not tell you, 
but they're hurting. People are hurting. People are broken. And if we can tap into forming and investing in relationships with people, you know, extending compassion for the sake of the gospel, God will give us opportunities to share Christ with people. You know, when is the last time that you shared the good news with someone, maybe with a family member or a friend that doesn't know Christ? When's the last time you shared your testimony? You told someone what God has done in your life. You know, even if it was just kind of a quick thing, maybe at Starbucks or at a restaurant, you know, God has given us this responsibility and this privilege to take the gospel, um, which brings healing and refreshment into people's lives. Look at Revelation 3, verse 17. Um, Jesus says, for you say, so he's, he's quoting what they say, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Here's point number two, underlining disease. So the symptom is lukewarmness, but the real issue at stake that I think Jesus is really lasering in on is their spiritual condition. There was a different church called Smyrna. They were a rich, poor church. Jesus said, you're rich spiritually, but you're poor materialistically. The Laodiceans, they were the exact opposite. They were rich in abundance. They, they had stuff, they had material things, but I think they were poor spiritually. Jesus touches on this in Matthew 5, 3 in the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first Beatitude, the, the foundational truth, because we know that the Beatitudes stack upon each other, and one leads to the next, which leads to the next. There's a, there's a sequence, a logical sequence to them. The first beatitude is in order to be happy in this life, in order to be blessed in this life, you have to recognize, according to Jesus, you have to recognize your spiritual condition. You have to admit that you're spiritually bankrupt before God, that you're bankrupt, your bank account is a big fat zero. It's zero. There's you, you cannot make a transaction. And this is the gospel. Christ who was rich became poor so that you who are poor spiritually might be rich in faith towards God. Jesus quotes the Laodiceans as saying, for you say, right? For you say, I am rich and I've prospered and I don't need anything. This was the mantra of their lives. They said, you know what? We're rich. We've got wealth. We've got the abundance of stuff. You know, I think they had stuffitis, you know? I think they just, they, they, they were consumers, they were hoarding stuff up, and uh, they had it all. They were prosperous, they carved out a good living for themselves, and they said, you know what, we don't need anything. Basically what they're saying is, we're self-sufficient, self-reliant, self, they were self-consumed. And so you'll notice Jesus' second rebuke, look at verse 17. He says, not realizing so you say you're rich, you say you've prospered, right? You say, you know, I don't need anything. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The Laodicean people, they were known for many things. They had a textile center. They, they produced this famous, soft, glossy black wool. They had a financial center. Um, historians tell us that Cicero, a Roman statesman and philosopher, cashed huge bank drafts in, La in Laodicea. The city experienced two earthquakes, one in AD 17 and in 60. 
And the story goes that the city was completely destroyed. Rome steps in. Hey, we're, we want to help you rebuild the city. And the people of Laodicea said, thanks, but no thanks. We don't need your help. And they rebuilt the city with their own money. They had a medical center, famous medical center. They produced this this ointment, this spice nard mixed with oil called Fergian powder, and it was used to, to heal eye and, and ear defects. So here you have this letter delivered to the church, and Jesus is saying, you say you're rich, you're fluent, you have status, right? You've, you've achieved all the high levels of success, and right out the gate, Jesus says, you are wretched which means you are miserable, you're distressed, you're troubled. He says you're pitiable, in need of great mercy. He says you're actually poor. You think you're rich, but you're poor spiritually, spiritually poor. Because I think a lot of people in Laodicea, they profess Christ, but they didn't genuinely know him. They have facts about Jesus, but they don't have a relationship with Jesus. I think there's a lot of people They know Jesus intellectually, but they don't know Jesus intimately in terms of a relationship. They know data, they have facts about Jesus, they could tell you parts about the Bible, but when it comes to their life, has the gospel changed them? No. If you encounter Christ, your life will be different. Because the gospel changes us from the inside out. Now, that change doesn't happen immediately. It doesn't happen overnight. Someone gives their life to Christ. Yes, sometimes decisions are made quickly. Sometimes believers have to grow. And the word of God confronts them about sin or, or different things in their life. And then they start making changes. Because the Holy Spirit is speaking to them, working on them in their, in their lives. I think one of the scariest verses of Knowing about Jesus intellectually, but missing the gospel with your heart is Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Scariest verse in the Bible. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, look at the list. Look at some of the things that they were doing. Obviously, they weren't doing it, you know, from the power of God because God said, depart from me, I never knew you. It's a scary verse to think that these these people that Jesus is talking about, they believe that they're servants of Christ, that they know God, but they really don't. Jesus says, you're blind, right? Your eyes are blinded to spiritual truth. You're, You're naked, right? That this metaphor for guilt and shame, in that day, ultimate humiliation was to not have clothes. If you didn't have clothes, you were either poor or you experienced great tragedy. So I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus is saying, hey, Laodiceans, you produce this really nice, you know, amazing black wool, but you yourselves are without clothing. You're physically clothed. You got the brand name. You got the fashion. You got, all, you got the threads. But spiritually, you're naked before God. You know, you, you say you're rich, but you're really poor, poor spiritually. The Laodiceans, they were rich. They were powerful. They were successful. They were educated. They were affluent. 
It sounds like America. And it sounds like a lot of people that live in San Diego. You know, they got education, they got career, they got money, they got wealth. They have everything, everything at their fingertips. And the problem is an attitude of the Laodiceans led them to lukewarmness. There was a direct link between their attitude and spiritual lukewarmness because in verse 17, they said, I am rich, I have prospered. Notice what they said, I need nothing. I think that's the mindset of a lot of people. I don't need God. I mean, why do I, why do I, need, why do I need religion? Christianity isn't a religion, but it's a relationship with Christ. But why do, I, why do I need spirituality? Why do I need Jesus in my life? You know, and, and, and they make excuses. I don't, I don't need Jesus. I don't need Christianity because my life is great. I've got the money. I've got the toys. I've, I live in this great city. People don't see that what they truly need is beyond the temporal. You know, this world only offers the temporal. It's earthly. It's, it's temporary. James says our life is like a mist. You know, you... One moment you feel the mist on your skin, the next moment it's gone. You know, if you go to a restaurant, they got a a mist system, maybe on the patio. You feel the mist and then it's gone. It's there for a moment and then it's gone. That's, That's what it's like with having the world's goods. In one moment, it feels good. It's refreshing. But the next moment, it's completely gone. You know, lukewarmness, I think, is based on self-sufficiency and pride. And here's why. I think it spills, it can spill out of our own accomplishments. Um, Spills out of our own accomplishments into our spiritual life, which I think makes it impossible to be changed and transformed by the message of the gospel. Because if you have the mindset, I don't need Jesus, I don't need this, I don't need that, then Yes, there's going to be no transformation in your life. And, and at the end of the day, this is what most Americans say. I, I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. I have money, pleasure, career. I have it all. But what they have really is nothing. Revelation chapter 3, 18 to 20, it says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline to be zealous and repent. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Here's point number three, medication. How do you treat lukewarmness? You know, maybe honestly, you're sitting here this morning and you're like, you know what, maybe I'm I'm kind of lukewarm in my life. You know, I'm not cold, I'm not hot. Maybe you've made a profession, right? But the, the practice isn't there. The, there's no fruit. There's no evidence in your life that you're a believer. Let me give you some points of application. Number one, realize that salvation is by God's grace. I think that's foundational. Jesus says, buy from me gold refined by fire. Now, now Peter tells us that our faith is more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire. Gold here is saving faith. So how do you buy it, right? How do the Laodiceans buy it, right? Well, Isaiah 55.1 says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. 
I think the message of the Bible is if you're thirsty, come to Jesus. Jesus will quench your thirst. If you're hungry, come and buy and eat. Jesus is all satisfying. How do you come to him? How do you come to Christ? Without money, without payment. You come to him by faith. The Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. It talks about these white garments. White garments represents forgiveness and being pardoned and being cleansed of all sin. Where do we get the gold and the white garments? We get it from Jesus. We place our faith in Christ. He applies his moral record to us. He gives us his righteousness. We give him our sin and our lives are forever changed. Look at verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Here's point number two. Be willing to endure suffering. Be willing to endure suffering. Jesus first says, buy from me gold refined by fire. And we know that the process of, of, of getting gold, gold, gold is like heated up. All the impurities rise to the tops, skimmed off. And faith is, is more precious than gold that's tested by fire. We know that our faith is going to be tested by trials and tribulations and hard times. But notice what he says in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. I reprove and discipline. Sometimes we think the trial, the setback, the disappointments of life, the, the hard times, you know, the, the, the struggles. Sometimes we think those are attacks from the enemy. Sometimes it's not the attack of the enemy. It's God working in your life. It's God allowing things to happen into your life, not to tear you down, not to punish you, not to punish you. God doesn't punish his children. He disciplines for our good to produce righteousness, a harvest of righteousness. He, he, he disciplines us so that we could be conformed to the image of Christ. So not every bad thing is from the enemy. Sometimes God allows hard, bad things into our lives. And he's got a plan. Sometimes we don't see the plan, but God has a plan for it all. You know, you know the amazing truth here, when we're looking at this story, God has such a tender, affectionate love for the Laodiceans. They're like the worst church out of the seven. But notice what he says to them in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Here's point number three. Accept God's invitation of intimate fellowship. I, mean, I just want you to think about this for a moment. The Laodiceans, man, their spiritual condition, lukewarm, broken. I mean, I think their life was marked by, you know, opulence and wealth and, I mean, just easy, comfortable life. And there was really no pursuit after God, but God is saying, listen, I stand at the door of your heart and I'm knocking. And if you open the door, I'll step in, right? The context of the verse, Jesus is locked out of the church, essentially. And I don't know, maybe he was locked out of the church. The Laodiceans maybe locked him out because, you know, we can't let Jesus into the church because he's too controversial or, you know, he's too demanding or he's too opinionated or he's too strong-willed or he's too divisive. So the church said, you know, let's get together and let's not invite Jesus to come in. And Jesus is simply knocking. 
and he's striking the door of the church. And he's saying, hey, if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we'll, we'll eat together. You know, in, in ancient times, when people shared a meal, it was a very intimate thing. It was a sign of friendship and affection. And it was more than just eating. It was, it was meaningful. There was, there was meaning to it. There was purpose to it. There was intimacy connected to sharing a meal and breaking bread with, with someone else. It was a sign of friendship and fellowship. Jesus is saying, I'm standing outside. I'm knocking on the door of the church. It's really the literal context. I'm knocking on the, the door of the church. And I, and I want to come in. I want intimate fellowship with you. Because I think many of the people in the church were not believers. If you open the door, and I think that's the act of faith. Faith is a choice. It's a decision. You have to open the door. Here's the beautiful thing about the gospel and how Jesus operates. Does it say that Jesus is banging the door down? Is he ripping the door off the, what are those things called on the side? The door hinges? Yeah. Sometimes you get these brain farts up here and you're like, what are those things called? He's not ripping the door off the hinges. He's not barging in. Because Jesus is a gentleman. And he's more than a gentleman. He's God. He doesn't have to do that. He's softly and tenderly. He's knocking on the door of people's hearts. And he's saying, hey, if you open the door by faith and let me come in, there'll be a sweet friendship and a sweet fellowship. And so I guess the question this morning is, is Jesus welcome in your life? Have you opened the door and asked Christ to come in? Is he, is he welcomed in our church? You know, the Bible says that Jesus is the chief shepherd, right? He's the, the senior pastor. I'm not. Like, God put me here for a season, for a time, to be faithful, to preach the gospel, to shepherd, to love, to teach. You're not my people. You're God's people. Jesus shed his blood for you and for me. And so we are his people. We are his family. And so... Jesus should always be welcomed into our church, but he should also be welcomed into our lives. Does Jesus have the final say in your life when it comes to everything? When it comes to everything, does he have the final say? Here's the last point, verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on, the, on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Here's point four. Be an overcomer and inherit the promise. Be an overcomer and inherit the promise. You know, Jesus is pictured here as a king with a throne. And the promise that he's extending, he's saying, if you overcome, you'll sit with me on my throne. Jesus says, you'll sit with me as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, you might say, well, what has Jesus conquered? Well, we know what he conquered. He trampled death. He defeated the enemy, right? He, he nailed our sin to the cross it was once and for all sacrifice. Jesus never has to die again. His death was final payment for everything. Jesus conquered and defeated hell. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see him who for a little while 
was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus tasted death for you so that you might inherit the promise. And the promise is you'll be with King Jesus, part of his kingdom for eternity. Sins forgiven, eternity altered, feasting it with him at the banquet table and sitting upon a throne with him for all eternity. Is Jesus the king of your life? Is Jesus the king of your life? Are you a part of his kingdom? Do you know Christ? Or is it maybe like you've just been jumping through religious hoops, you know, church is, you know, just check it off. Just been something you do your whole life. But there's never been surrender. There's never been humility and acknowledgement that you're broken, that you need God's grace, you need his forgiveness. And you surrender and you commit to follow Christ, follow him. He's the leader. You're following him the rest of your life. You know, some people, I'm afraid, I think they're in the shadow of the church. But they're not in the shadow of the cross. They come to church religiously. Maybe they've even been baptized. But they've never truly repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ. You can do that today. You can move from the shadow of the church, it being just a religious jump through the hoop type thing, checkbox, to knowing Christ, believing in Christ, and inviting Christ by faith, opening the door and letting Christ come into your life to be with you forever. Let's pray.